0: let's open up our Bibles once again to the book of Matthew. However, we're scheduled, as we're making our way verse by verse into the New Testament, we're scheduled to be in the end of chapter 15. But I think because of this time of year that we find ourselves in, I actually want to go back about a year and a half ago. About a year and a half ago, we began our study in the book of Matthew. And I'd like to cover some territory that we covered back then concerning Matthew's take on the, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's some things about Christmas that that might uh, surprise you. You know, we look around and we realize that that Christmas in in our culture is kind of a big deal. I mean, we're spending like over $960 billion on travel and food and gifts and decorations, all these kinds of things. But as crazy as we are about Christmas, there are other nations that are crazier than we are. Uh, you look at a world map, all of the nations that are in the lightest shade of red, almost, almost a pink, which includes the United States, these, these are countries uh, that uh, take one day to celebrate Christmas. And then the countries with a little darker shade uh, of red, these are nations that spend two days. And then you'll notice there are several uh, European countries that they actually take three days to celebrate Christmas. So we're nutty but there are others that are nuttier than than we are. Now, it might also surprise you that there was a time in American history where celebrating Christmas was illegal. You go back to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Uh, They declared that festivals, as were superstitiously kept in other countries, were a great dishonor of God and an offense of others. It is ordered by this court and the authority thereof that whosoever shall be found observing any such day as christmas either by not working feasting or any other way every such person so offending shall pay for every such offence 5 shilling as a fine uh, to the county now what what the puritans were coming from is that uh, they they looked at the scripture and they didn't see any evidence that the birth of christ is ever ever celebrated of course except the night that he was born, right? The angels were celebrating. But we don't find the early church. We don't find any indication of the book of Acts. We don't find any indication that the birth of Christ was ever considered to be uh, some big deal that needed to be celebrated. So the Puritans were of the opinion that okay the early church didn't celebrate it, so we shouldn't be celebrating it either but then what happened in our country around the mid 1800s we had this huge influx of german Uh, refugees, German immigrants. So we can blame it all on the Germans. All right. So they came here and they were all excited about Christmas. And eventually, uh, Ulysses Grant is the one that made it uh, a national holiday. But for us, whether we should be celebrating or not, for us, we understand that the God-man was born and the God-man came to us. And it is a great mystery how all of that worked. In fact, Paul, you remember writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he said, without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a good German, he said it a little bit more eloquently this way. He said, no priest, no theologian stood at the cradle of Bethlehem and yet all Christian theology finds its beginnings in the miracle of miracles that God became human. So the God-man came, and the God-man came with a purpose. There was a reason why he came. And what Matthew does is that Matthew reveals for us how all of this rolled out. Now, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 of Matthew, notice Matthew says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed, or engaged, so she and Joe, are in an engagement period of time. In that culture, it usually lasted around a year. So this is during this time of engagement. While she was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together. So somewhere between Joe giving her the engagement ring and them running off on their honeymoon, somewhere in between those two events. Now, she finds herself in a real weird spot. So before they came together, physically, as husband and wife, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And then notice verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, now they considered engagement uh, as solid as a marriage. And if you wanted to get out of an engagement, you actually had to go through a divorce uh, procedure. So they, the culture would have considered them married, even though physically they are not living together or physically being with each other. So Joseph, her husband, being a just man, Joseph is a good guy. You know, Mary, she gets all the press, rightfully so. She was a good girl. Uh, but Joseph was a, a good guy. I mean, after all, God has chosen him to be the, step, the stepdad of, of the son of God. So, I mean, how good a guy do you have to be for God to give you that job, right? So he's a, he's a just guy, just man. He's going to do the right thing. And not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away secretly. So somewhere in that year engagement, Mary got with her. I don't know if they met at Starbucks. I don't know what was going on there. But she, she meets with him. And she says to, uh, you know, her, her husband-to-be, funny story, you know, hope you're sitting down, uh, but I'm with child. And um, even gets a little funnier uh, because I'm with child uh, by God, right? Now, here, here's a guy being told this crazy story that she has betrayed him and now she thinks he is dumb enough to believe that God uh, is the father, right? So this guy, this guy is struggling on two, two fronts here. I mean, he's been betrayed. Now, I know some of your stories, and I know some of you have been betrayed, and you know as well as I do that betrayal is one of the most painful of human experiences. Betrayal can become so intense in our lives that it can take an otherwise normal, law-abiding person and send them into a murderous rage. I mean, you see it all the time in the news, right? So this is a guy that is going through a time of just intense emotion. And now this woman expects him to believe that God is, I mean, she doesn't even come up with a decent excuse, you know, I got drunk at a party and a guy took advantage of me or some such thing. I mean, so not only is she a betrayer, She's a crazy person. Who in the world comes up with with these kind of ideas? Now, Joseph, he really has just three very simple solutions in front of him. I mean, he he could take one for the team right? He could turn a blind eye, but if she has betrayed me before the marriage, why should I have any confidence she's not going to betray me after the marriage? And this thing about God being the father, I mean, that's just insane. I'm not going to marry a betraying crazy person. It's just not going to happen. And I would imagine that most of us guys here, we would probably be of the same opinion. No, I just cannot go there. Now, the second choice, he could could burn her right? And she's burned him. Seemingly, she's burned him, right? I mean, here, here, all of his hopes, all of his dreams, they're just smashed. And so, sister, you're going to reap what you've sown. You burn me. I'm going to burn you. And I'm going to drag your sorry rear end down to the religious leaders. And I'm going to make your life miserable. And I'm going to destroy your name in this community. A lot of guys would have done that. But He could divorce her privately. Now, notice that we're told here that he was minded. All right, so he's leaning in that direction. He's running, and you can see him out in his wood shop, and he's throwing tools, and he's growling and all of these things, and he's just trying to figure this out. What in the world am I supposed to do? And so he could do it privately by going to her legal guardian and say, hey, give me the ring. I want it back. Give me the money, the dowry. I want it back. And uh, if you want to know why the wedding is off, you just, you just talk to Mary. And so he is minded, and this kind of guy he is, he's going to do the nicest thing that he can do in these circumstances. And he's just going to, he's going to put it Put her away privately. Now, he hasn't pulled the trigger on it. You see, he's, he's, we're, we're told now in verse 20 that while he's thinking on these things, he's trying to, he's trying to untangle all of these thoughts. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And so we read in verse 20, but while he thought on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife. See, he gives us a little insight into his head space here. He's afraid. Why in the world? would I marry this woman? I mean, what kind of heartache would I be introducing into my life if I allow her to hitch her wagon to me? I'm, I'm afraid of this. And so the angel shows up and says, hey, don't, don't be afraid to take her for your wife. Now the reason why, notice, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The girl isn't lying. So the, the angel is backing up Mary's story and she's going to bring forth. Now notice, isn't this interesting? She's going to bring forth a son, not your son. This boy is not your boy. You're going to be stepdad in this situation. Stepdad is a very difficult role uh, to walk, and some of you know that. But this is going to be a son, not your son. This is going to be God's son, a son. And notice, you're going to call his name Jesus, now we got another reason, right? He gives him a reason why you shouldn't be afraid. Now he gives him a reason why you're going to call him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sin. Right? So he, he validates uh, Mary's story. And then he says, you're going to call him Jesus. Of course, we could, Jesus is, is kind of a Greek transliteration. Uh, the English would be Joshua. The Hebrew would be Yehoshua. And uh, the reason why you're going to call him this is because Yehoshua means salvation. Yah is salvation or salvation is of Jehovah. All right, you're going you're to call him salvation is of God. And the reason for that is because he will save his people from their sin. This is the mission of Christ. This is a reason why he has come. He hasn't come to give us nice lives He hasn't come uh, to heal us necessarily. He hasn't come uh, to give us uh, a good time. His sole purpose in coming and what we could call his mission statement. Now, a mission statement, sometimes you'll see a corporation or a nonprofit, you know, some kind of an organization where they summarize why they exist. They summarize why they're in business. It's usually just one or two sentences. So every employee and every volunteer, they can easily memorize it. Everybody knows, all right, now this is why we do what we do. Now, some mission statements really are kind of underwhelming. Uh, You look at Barnes & Noble. Uh, They say, our mission is to operate the best specialty retail business in America, regardless of the product we sell. We sell garbage, but nobody sells it better than us. Now, some mission statements are rather lofty. Avery Dennison, their mission statement is to make every brand more inspiring and the world more intelligent. They make stickers, right? Now, I was told the first service, we have some Avery Dennison employees in our church and they came up and they told me that some of these stickers are smart stickers and they're connected to the internet and that's why they're making us all smart. So I don't know. I still think it's a bit of a stretch in your mission statement. Now, the mission statement of the Messiah is that he will save his people from their sin. Now, save... Is, a, is an interesting term, isn't it? It's a term that we don't really use that often in the church any longer. I came to Christ in the 1970s. And in the 1970s, a frequent question that you would hear within the Christian community, somebody asking somebody else, Are you saved? Now, if you're my age or older and you were a believer then, you know, today we do ask, well, are you a believer? Are you a Christian? Are you a follower uh, of Christ? But in the 70s, it was very popular to ask, are you saved? I remember the first time I was asked that question. I was a Christian for about, only about three or four weeks. And I was at a, a Christian concert and some guy came up to me and he said, are you saved? i would never heard that before. And I thought, that is a weird question. Are, are you saved? I mean, you think about the intensity of that question. You see, we, we hear these things so frequently that they really lose their impact on us, don't they? You think about being saved. I'm on my ship out at sea. I get capsized. I'm hanging on a piece of styrofoam. Goodbye, cruel world. And all of a sudden, a Coast Guard chopper shows up. Oh, thank heavens, I'm, I'm saved. It's, it, it comes with a sense of intensity. It comes with a, a sense of, of desperation. And this is what you and I have to understand. We were born as the children of wrath, even as others. We were born the enemies of God. I don't know about you, but I deserved hell and God saved me. It is the Lord who has saved us. You call him. God saves because he will save his people from their sin. Now notice in verse 22. So all of this was done. Now here is where he's telling us that, look, this is not a new plan. This has been around for a while. All of this has been done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet, through Isaiah, saying, and he's gonna quote now from Isaiah chapter seven, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God is with us. And why is God with us? Because he's gonna save us from our sin there is this great transfer that takes place that christ he took my sin he took your sin he that knew no sin he became sin for us that we then might become the righteousness of god all of your sin all of my sin was nailed on that cross our sin transferred to him and as we put simple faith in christ because we're saved by grace through faith, that all of that righteousness that was on Christ, his righteous life, is now transferred to us. And we now stand sinless and righteous before God, not because we're good church people, but because we trust in Christ by faith. Now, the story that he is referring to is taking place between an encounter between the prophet Isaiah and one of the worst human beings that has ever walked this planet. A guy that was a full-blown Satanist, a guy by the name of Ahaz. Ahaz had covered all of Israel with Sodom and Gomorrah asphalt. This guy was so Satanic that he sacrificed his own children to these demonic gods. Imagine taking a little baby and laying it on this altar and burning them alive to some idol. That is who this guy was. And the Lord said to Isaiah, I want you to go confront that guy. And you tell that guy to ask for a sign to prove that I am a God of my word. He he can ask for anything. And so here we have Isaiah confronting this guy. And this guy said, look, I don't wanna deal with it. All right, get away from me. I'm not gonna ask for a sign. And Isaiah said, you don't want a sign? Well, God's going to give you and going to give this nation a sign. And he says that, behold, a virgin is going to be found with child. A woman who has never had a physical encounter with a man is going to find herself with a child. And she's going to give birth to a son. Now, there are those theologians that will rightly point out that that word virgin can depending upon the context, that it can be speaking of a young girl. And there are some theologians who say, ah, you see, this is not miraculous. Is it just God saying a young girl is going to have, uh, gonna have a, a, a baby? But Again, what is the context? The man of God is confronting a Satanist and saying to the Satanist, God is going to give you a sign. What is that sign? A young girl going to have a baby. What a stupid sign to give to a Satanist, right? That is not going to be impressive at all. He's not talking about a young girl. He is talking about a woman who has not been physical with a man, that she is the one that's going to bring forth a child. Now, there are people that struggle with the virgin birth. The New York Times, New York Times tells us this. The faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical over time. Only idiots believe in the virgin birth. Richard Dawkins, he said, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles, all are freely used for religious propaganda, and they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. You see, you really don't have any education if you believe in the virgin birth. Now look, if you have a problem with a virgin birth, it's because you've got a problem with God. If you can get by the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning God created, if you can get by those, the rest is all downhill. If you can believe that in the beginning God created the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and everything that is in them, it should be no problem at all to understand that our God has the complete ability. If he created everything to begin with, why could he not create human life in the womb of a virgin? Al Mohler, he tells us this. The real question is this. Can a Christian once aware of the Bible's teaching, reject the virgin birth? The answer must be no. And I really like what uh, Millard Erickson said. He said, if we do not hold to the virgin birth, despite the fact that the Bible asserts it, then we have compromised the authority of the Bible, and there is in principle no reason why we should hold to its other teachings. Thus, rejecting the virgin birth has implications reaching far beyond the doctrine itself right? So here, uh, we find Joseph, he's at ease, and notice how he responds to all of this. And then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, good boy, and he took to him his wife, and he did not know, isn't this interesting? He didn't know her, that is, physically know her, right? They didn't come together as husband and wife, until she brought forth her firstborn son. Now, there are, uh, there are some in the church world that would suggest that she is a perpetual virgin. But it does seem that Mary and Joseph had a normal husband and wife relationship uh, after uh, the, uh, the birth of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So she brought forth her firstborn and notice he called his name Jesus. Now, three reasons why the Lord Jesus Christ was born reason number one is to reveal the truth about God there's all kinds of goofballs out there that will try and tell you about God and they'll tell you that God is this and God is that and God doesn't like this and God doesn't like that and when you do this you really get on God's nerves and they got all kinds of ideas to try and tell you what God is like There is only one true authority who will reveal to us the intricacies about our God. Jesus Christ so demonstrated God to humanity that he said, if you have seen me, then you have seen God. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? Is is God just ready to bap you in the head? Is God, has he, have you gotten on the final nerve of God and he is just about ready to just, you know, end your life? I mean, is God out to make you miserable? Is God unforgiving? Is God on edge? Is, is God, uh, you know, a, a, a little, you know, grouchy at times? Well, you just go to the gospels. You just look at the life of Christ and you realize, oh, God is long-suffering. You realize how patient God is. Oh, you realize how kind he is. You realize how he notices so many people that are looked over by other people. And you begin to get an entirely different picture of what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, don't ask me. You open your Bible, begin to read the Gospels, study the life of Christ, and you'll understand what your Heavenly Father is like. The second reason is to show the divine ideal. How does God want us to live? What is the will of God? Again, don't ask me what the will of God is for your life. Read your Bible. Go to the book of of uh, the uh, the books of the Gospels and and begin to look at the life of Christ and and see how did he respond when he was betrayed? How did he respond when he was lied to? How did he respond when he was offended? How did he love? How did he minister to people? You just look at the life of Christ and understand that Is what God wants from your life and mine. And of course, finally, He became human in order that He might die. This was the reason for His life. He came so that in the fullness of time, He would rightly demonstrate God before humanity, He would show us how a man or woman of God is to order their life. What is their behavior supposed to be like? And eventually, he would allow the Jews and the Romans to strip him naked, beat him within an inch of his life, nail him to that cross, and he would die for our sin. And that's why we call him Yehoshua. We call him God saves because he shall save his people from their sin but we call him other things too don't we what do we call the lord jesus christ we call him the advocate the almighty the alpha and the omega the author and the finisher of our faith we call him the beloved blessed and only potentate the bread of life the Bride and morning star the captain of salvation the chief cornerstone the chief shepherd christ he is our commander He's the dayspring. He's the deliverer. He's the desire of all nations. He is the door. He's the elect of God. He is eternal life. He is the faithful and true, the faithful witness, the first and the last. He is the fountain. He is the fountain of life. He's the glory of, of the Lord. He's the good shepherd. He's the great high priest. He is God. He's the head of the church. He's the heir of all things. He's the Holy One. He is the Holy One of Israel. He's the great I Am. He's the image of God. He is Emmanuel. He's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the judge, the judge of Israel. He's the just one. He is the King of glory, the King of Israel, the King of peace, the King of righteousness. He is the King of kings. He's the life the light of the world, the lily of the valley, the lion of Judah, the Lord and Savior. He is the man of sorrows, the Messiah, the morning star, and yes, he is the Nazarene. He's the offspring of David, the only begotten son, our Passover, he's the power of God, the prince of life, the prince of peace, the prince of the kings of the earth. He is the quickening spirit, he's the redeemer, resurrection and life, he's the rock, the root of David, the rose of Sharon, he is the savior, the servant, the shepherd, the son of God, he is truth, the true life, the true vine, the true God, he is the undefiled one, yes, he is the vine, he's the wisdom of God, the witness of God, the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ is our everything, Everything is wrapped up in Christ. And this one who is everything has come and bled so that you might live. Are you saved? Are you saved? And when you answer that in the quietness of your heart, what is your answer? If the answer is no, then please understand that salvation is as near to you as your mouth in your own heart, if you'll confess him as Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You wanna be saved? I pray to God that every single one of you, that you are saved before you leave here this morning. If you're not saved, please allow me to give you an opportunity so that you might experience the assurance of salvation. It's not rocket science. God is simply asking you that you would change your mind about him, that you would simply turn to him and live. Are you saved? If the answer to that question is no, please do not let one excuse keep you from coming to the saving knowledge of Christ this morning. You just change your mind, and God will change your heart. He'll change your life. He'll go to work, and he will make you into a new creature. And so I want to give you an opportunity. If you know that you're not right with the Lord and you want to leave this place knowing that you're right with the Lord, I simply ask that you raise your hand. I know, I know it's a hard thing. I know it's a hard thing. Just raise your hand. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you this morning. Is there anybody here? You want to say, hey, I, I want to turn to the Lord. I want to say yes to Christ this morning. And I'm going to pray for you. Today is a day of salvation. Is there anybody? Now, for those of us who are the followers of Christ, oh, may we come to appreciate this season, this time of year. Christ is everything. And he gave up everything so he can have you. Oh, the incredible love of our God. I pray this week we would be found being the worshipers of the King of Kings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for your wonderful love. I thank you that this room is filled with so many stories of just destroyed lives (laughs) that you totally turned around and you redeemed. Father, your son is the redeemer of the lost, and we stand in awe of his love for us. Why? Why would you love us? Oh, what a mystery that you have chosen the likes of us to become the sons and daughters of God. That is a great mystery. But I pray that that mystery would just simply anoint our lips for worship this week. You are good. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.